please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Good morning. It's time for another Morning Espresso. It's Wednesday, the 3rd of February, if you are watching live. As always, you can always select below uh, the various languages so that you have a simultaneous uh, translation. You have a Q&A button, but you can always send us your questions to nordiafunds at nordia.com. Right. This morning we're going to be focusing on ESG and uh, for this first uh, section I'm joined by Elling Noring who is uh, an ESG analyst in the Responsible Investment Team. So good morning Ellen, are you there? Good morning, nice to be Hi. here. <laughs> and you're based in Stockholm, how are things up there? Well it's actually snowing at the moment so very much winter wonderland here. Good, lovely, <laughs> sounds nice. Um, my first question is perhaps it's an obvious one, but but maybe one that we should cover anyway, because, you know, we hear a lot about um, coal powered electricity and, and the need to remove that. And I just wondered if you could sort of tell us a little bit more about why that's so important. Yes, of course. Well, so so to start. Um, Several research, such as the one performed by the IEA, have found that uh, the CO2 emissions from coal combustion is responsible for over a third of the temperature increase compared to pre-industrial levels. And this leaves coal as the single largest contributor to uh, the global temperature rise. And uh, with this in mind, we know that coal must be phased out by 2040 to meet the Paris Agreement goals of limiting global warming to uh, one and a half degrees. But despite of this knowledge, uh, as you can also see on this map here, there are still a huge number of coal plants that are in a pre-construction or a construction phase. And historically, coal plants have retired at an average lifespan of around 46 years. So a plant that is finalized today will still be operational in 2067, missing then the deadline with about 30 years. And this, of course, does not add up if we want to achieve a complete exit by 2040. But there are some improvements uh, in this area that I think may contribute to us actually achieving the 2040 target. And one of those is the uh, slumping prices of renewables compared to coal, which I definitely think uh, motivates both policymakers as well as companies and investors to, to exit the coal industry. And we're, you know, at Nordea, we, we're very much on the engagement side of things. And I know that you're heavily involved in trying to prevent uh, a, the construction of a new coal-fired plant in Vietnam. I think it's called Vung An Tu. Uh, maybe you could just tell us a bit about that and how, it, how we came to, to be involved in this engagement. Yeah, sure. So um, as 
touched upon, uh, in order for us to meet our climate targets and also align our portfolios with the Paris Agreement, we know that we need to phase out our coal-fired electricity from our, our investment universe. And one of the ways of achieving this is, of course, to divest. But mm -hmm. that doesn't enable us to achieve any real-world impact that is lowering the global emission levels. Um, so, so the preferred option for us is rather to engage with our MSD companies and influence them to phase out coal from, from their energy mix. And when we turned our eyes to coal, um, one project that really stood out was the Vungang 2 coal plant in Vietnam. Yeah. So if we turn to the second slide, mm -hmm. um, first of all, we found that the emission levels from this project uh, is estimated to be almost three times as high as the levels from the average plant in the EU, uh -huh. China, the US, and so on. And we also found that the environmental impact assessment that has been carried out on this project has major flaws. Uh, and one example of that is that it has failed to assess renewables as an alternative to coal. And right. this is quite remarkable given the price competitiveness of, of clean energy nowadays. Mm. Um, and secondly, Vung has also been significantly delayed throughout the years. So the plant construction was approved already in 2009 and was expected to begin operating just a few years later. But then this deadline has been pushed and pushed and pushed again, afflicting mm -hmm. huge costs. Um, and also throughout this period, the price of renewables has plummeted. So not only is this an unattractive investment from an environmental perspective, but also from a financial point of view. Um, and finally, yet another reason why we wanted to engage was due to the health and safety issues tied to this project. Um, for instance, there are reports pointing to that a coal plant that is already operational on the same site where Vung Ang is to be built has inflicted major negative health impacts for the commune residents, such as elevated heart and lung diseases. Mm -hmm. So all these factors uh, resulted in, in our decision to engage with the companies that are tied to this project. Uh, and on, not only did we uh, want them to, to withdraw from this specific plant construction, but also to, to get them to commit to exit the entire coal industry. Um, so, in a next step, we decided that we wanted to extend an invitation to clients as well as uh, investor peers to carry this engagement out collectively, mm -hmm. uh, both then to leverage on the knowledge from other investors and also to increase the ownership share in the companies tied to this project. Um, and the interest has been huge. And the group now consists of 25 investors representing as much as 4.8 trillion euros uh, as assets under management. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, increases the pressure on the companies to, to adhere to our expectations. So, and, and so in terms of that engagement, you know, what are some of the, the key highlights so far? I mean, obviously, you, you, one of the highlights is getting this group together. But you know, what are you achieving along the way? Yeah, so if we if we look at uh, the third slide, um, 
first of all, the media interest for this engagement has been extensive, which I would say has contributed to an increased uh, public opinion against the construction work. Mm -hmm. uh, on a company level, a few highlights include that Samsung CNT, which is one of the project's contractors, has announced that it will exit uh, the coal business, stating that shareholder pressure, like ours, has played a key role in, in their decision making. Uh, and similarly, Kebco, which is one of the majority owners, has committed to also refrain from all foreign coal-related business going forward. But challenges do uh, remain still, uh, especially in terms of the uh, geopolitical forces that are at play here. Uh, and I'm particularly thinking about China and Japan that contributes to that the state-owned companies that are involved here and also some of the banks stay involved even though the financial argument uh, may be weak. But tides are turning and Japan, China, as well as South Korea, uh, where these uh, companies are located, have all made uh, net zero commitments within the last couple of months. So, so I, I would say that there is really a momentum now, both in terms of companies withdrawing from this specific project, but also committing to exit uh, the coal business. So we are very much determined to keep our course and continue to engage with the companies on this important topic. Excellent. Well, sounds like uh... This is the start of a journey, I guess, and uh, we'll keep an eye and, and see how things uh, progress. But uh, first of all, thank you for joining us this morning, Ellen. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get, get you back on to, to give us an update uh, perhaps later in the year. Thank you for having me. All right. So now we move on to the main section. And today I'm joined by Teda Rust. Uh, Teda is head of our emerging market Debt team at Nordea and is also uh, the lead manager of our Emerging Stars uh, Bond Fund strategy. So, uh, good morning, Tata. Are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, I can, Paul. Ah, uh, can you, you hear are. me too? Or, uh, <laughs> I can good, indeed. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, difficult to, it's difficult to be honest to start with a big smile after actually some of the insights we just learned, right? I mean, because I, I think know. what Ellen was sharing is super topical. Actually plays also well, a route in our portfolios, to be honest. Yeah. Well, I found out that if I was a coal-powered uh, power station, then uh, I would already be decommissioned. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd be gone. <laughs> All right. So um, we've seen a, a, a big uptick in the number of uh, equity responsible investments, so ESG strategies being launched onto the market, um, but much less so on the fixed income side. And, I, and being a fixed income guy, I just wondered why you think this might be. I think that's a that's a great question. I mean, I think it's correct that it, it appears that we in fixed income have lacked the you know the initial wave, let's say, in that we've seen occurring in equity for ESG funds to be launched. And I think maybe one of the reasons for it is that fixed income is often an institutional asset class, right? So, and in that context, large chunks of it move somewhat more cautiously, right? I mean, sometimes I envy the equity guys when they can tell their, you know, their next Facebook or Tesla story, right? I mean, with us, it's much more about um, 
about risk management, right? And also the, the yeah. place that fixed income has in portfolio is slightly different. So, so that actually led to probably this, um, this trailing effect. But having said that, I mean, I think right now it's extremely exciting what is happening in, in fixed income in issuance, because what you have is the use of proceeds, right? So you can actually issue or you see more issuance of green bond sustainability linked structures. So basically we're catching up fast. Mm. And you were saying you're comparing yourself to an equity manager, obviously, equity managers, not only do they have a nice story, you know, they're, they're only dealing with one part uh, of the market effectively, because you not only deal with with corporates, but you're also dealing with sovereigns and, and also quasi quasi sovereigns. So that's a much tougher job, I would I would imagine. Um, what's the data like on on, you know, on the on the sovereign side? I think uh, we, we brought a slide with where, where basically I'm, I'm showing what my, my team has built together with the responsible investment team, basically, which is you can think of it as like a top down model for us to give an overview in, in ESG factors on sovereign level. Right. So, so we broken it down to the to the three components and build, um, build individual or chose individual data uh, series, for instance, transitioning economy, climate change exposure that we then use and compile together to basically get a, a top-down view of, um, of the situation within certain or within the universe that we cover, the sovereigns that we cover. Now, this model, has an updating frequency, a quarterly updating frequency. And that is actually, I mean, it's not fast moving, right? I mean, financial markets have, have <laughs> daily movements, but there is yeah. one element that I like to highlight is that it matches the thinking around it because a lot of these ESG topics on sovereign level, you know, take time to, to play out, right? I mean, so so the data frequency in that context is not, um, is not, linked from what we're actually using it for because like I mean the case of Brazil is quite associated with us as well where we're talking about an engagement case and deforestation and the relationship to um, to trading partners that doesn't play out in a three-month horizon right I mean this is actually something that is three to five years right so in that context the data that we have available and especially the frequency matches the task that we're trying to achieve. Now, if you ask me, would I like to have more granular late data and better data? I mean, certainly, absolutely, but it doesn't prevent from actually drawing conclusions on the data that you have available right now. Mm. And, and you just mentioned there the, the engagement and, you know, here at Nordea, obviously that's an important part, both on the equity and the fixed income side. And again, when we spoke last time, uh, we talked about this uh, engagement with, with Brazil on the deforestation. Have you got other examples perhaps you could share with us? Yeah, well, I mean, one, I think we did already share one, right? I mean, the Wungan, I would say, it certainly also plays a role in, in our portfolios, right? I mean, True. so that yep. one that we picked up and then... Other than that, I mean, for instance, we have a, we have a, we had dialogues in, in with Indonesia, right? I mean, this is again also deforestation, biodiversity, but here it's also an element of. Um, Indonesia has issued a green bond, right? So, so basically, how do you deal with a, with an issuer that is, um, you know that is part of a group of countries that are, I don't know if active is the right world, but impacted or have regulation challenges in relation to deforestation and issuing a, a green bond, right? I mean, so in that mm. context, what you can think of, it's almost like a, 
maybe a coal plant issuing a green bond to enable itself to move to renewables, right? So in that context, a country like Indonesia also wants to establish a transition pathway. And there we had dialogues about how's that possible in a country basically that, you know, that has challenges or relationships towards deforestation. So that, that is one example. And then another one I would like to highlight is because it's in the in the in-between zone between sovereigns and corporates are the so-called quasi-sovereigns, which are 100% uh, state-owned um, entities. And there, for instance, a, a company like Pemex, where we have the ability to dialogue with the, with the company and the sovereign through the Climate Action 100 plus initiative. So I think there are plenty of examples of things that are going on. Not all of them are in media or in the open, but um, I think it's important that we do speak about some of them and highlight them because otherwise it feels that we just put a blanket of engagement on everything, right? I mean, and I mm. think in that context, again, can only stress also the work of Ellen and her team, how mm. important that is from our perspective. Yeah, you mentioned there um, the, the quasi-sovereigns, and uh, obviously that's part of the benchmark, part of your benchmark uh, as well. How do they compare to, to corporates in terms of perhaps, you know, the ESG risk, but also maybe the opportunity to engage? How, how do you see that? I think that's uh, the, the, that's in the when you ref refer to the benchmark, that's the J.P. Morgan Ambic Diversified, right? I mean, which is the go-to benchmark. Exactly. That's a, that's <laughs> also the one that we use in our star strategy, right? I mean, yeah. to remind ourselves, we purposefully choose a, a non-ESG screened index, right? I mean, just the standard index. And I think we have a slide actually maybe on this as well about the about the quasi-sovereigns because what, we, what we're showing here is a bit um, on the on the well from my perspective the left hand side right is is that we're showing uh, from the climate accountability institute basically companies that how much they're associated with greenhouse gas emission and this is cumulative greenhouse gas emission and the the errors the blue errors are the ones the companies and again these are the quasi sovereigns that are part of the mbig index so basically these companies are you know so-called carbon mayors so they're quite um quite intensively responsible for the releasing greenhouse gas emission now i'm this is something to first educate yourself on, right? I mean, you need to be aware of that this is happening in your universe. And then we also have, I mean, especially in the context of uh, the discussion that we had before with ESCOM, right? I mean, that is a power producer, the power producer in South Africa. And if you had the chance to focus on the map that Ellen was sharing with us, you see in South Africa, a lot of the production of electricity is from coal, basically. And these are part of our index. And we consider this a relatively difficult or very difficult to engage, um, engage entities because they sometimes also parcel the responsibility around, right? I mean, away from, for instance, um, Pemex, a Mexican or the Mexican oil company to the sovereign. And both basically the government would say, okay, please talk to the company. And the company may say, yeah, but we only, we're getting the goals actually from the sovereign side, right? So you can be stuck in trying to even find a dialogue. And, and we don't see, I mean, it's, we're afraid to say that we don't see um, much progress actually in this universe to transition. Uh, 
That's a, that's a, one yeah, it's a bit sobering time. message, I, I'm, yeah. I'm afraid. Like, yeah, but but what you do see in return, though, is and is basically in the corporate space, right? I mean, to to highlight that, to give a maybe more upbeat message here, is like, I mean, this is what I'm what we're saying with the the sustainability linked structures and so on, right? I mean, there we see a lot of issuance actually in a in a more transition space, so to say. Maybe maybe we should touch a bit on on corporates now because we've we've done sovereign, we've done quasi sovereign, but corporates is another part. And uh, I was going to ask you about, you know, how do you integrate your your fundamental analysis with the with the ESG side? How does that actually work uh, on, on the corporate side? Sure. I mean, what I can, I can share our methodology. It's probably best to bring up the slide as well that that in shows a little bit on how we how we deal with the situation. So basically what we do is um, we we do um we do an ESG screening, an SDG analysis, and the financial modeling. So we have three inputs to our investment decision. And basically, the ESG screening, I mean, that happens together, and the decision maker is the responsible investment team, right? So there we have analysts who, who help us, and we initially screen it, but then they, let's say, rubber stamp and go through the details of our holdings. So this is the... ESG risk, right? I mean, so this is actually what you think of how does a company act? How does it treat its workforce? You know, how does it treat the environment and so on? So it's the, the risk within a company. But we didn't stop that. It's, you know, to use the best example is like, this is the stuff that keeps you up at night, right? I mean, where you start worrying about, okay, what's happening basically in the company? Are they acting the right way? Is the governance structure, right? But then what gets you up in the morning is the SDG analysis, right? So these are the 17 goals from the United Nations, the Sustainable Development Goals. And there we, we use uh, data from third-party providers and our own analysis to, to see whether the products and services that these companies produce that we invest in are harmful or not towards the Sustainable Development Goals. And we seek um, companies that are non-harmful and preferably um, you know, pushing the SDGs or make, creating an environment where the products and services create a, a situation where the SDGs are more likely to be achieved. And this is actually, you know, the start of um, impact type of thinking, right? I mean, what type of impact do the products and services have? The reason why we do that is because one, of course, it feels great and amazing to be part of, you know, pushing the SDGs forward and making them more likely to happen. But the other element is we just heard about stranded assets, right? I mean, that we believe that business models that are aligned towards these goals are more resilient. Right, so we have less risk of stranded assets. We actually, we think these companies have, generally speaking, thematically, a structural brighter future than non-aligned companies. So that's quite important to remember. And then the last one is the one, you know, that's maybe, I mean, for some of us, the least exciting. I mean, it's the, it's really digging into the numbers, doing the financial analyst, analyst, looking at where's your yield, how's it priced to peers, and so on. So basically, the the old school, if you want to call it that way credit work and those three components together form the basis of how we select corporates right another thing that we're seeing though is uh you know within your space we're seeing more and more uh issuance of sort of sustainable bonds and we're reading about you know we have green bonds we have social bonds we have sustainable bonds could you just maybe give us an idea of what each of those are and what the differences are between them? Sure. I mean, there's, there's, um, there, there are, 
they're, they're quite complicated standards related to it, right? So it's of course yeah. only a, a glimpse in it, but but yeah. I think what they all have in common from my perspective is this concept of use of proceeds, right? I mean, that you get some visibility into where you're lending into, into which type of activity. For instance, a green bond would say that, um, you know, would indicate that these projects that the green bond finances is, um, well, as quote unquote green, green projects, right? To give an example, maybe not of EMD space, but covered bonds, fixed income spaces, this could, for instance, be the, you know, the renovation of an existing building, improving the, the window structures, improving the heating system to bring energy levels down, right? I mean, so, and, and this enables you as an, as an investor to really see, okay, instead of general issuance that just goes quote unquote to the company you can see which project is supported and i think that is actually a very that's one of the reasons why i think that um, you know fixed income can maybe even overtake equity with esg and sustainability integration because you have that tool that you can link towards um, specific lending activities or specific projects now this is an example of a green bond an example of a sustainability linked structure is for instance that we see companies also so one of the, the second or the first out of EM space and the second, um, second issued globally was a, in a sustainability linked structure from Susano. And what happens here is it's, it's that basically you, with the green bonds, you have reporting requirements and so on, but you don't really have yet, I mean, a structure where you can, for instance, sue the issuer or like you get a punishment towards the issuer if they if they don't succeed in their green bond projects. In a sustainability linked structure, the issuer, for instance, tells the, the investors certain targets they want to reach. And if they don't reach this target, then the coupon payment will go up, right? So you have a, an even stronger framework you could argue for the company to, to, to reach its goals, basically. So you have um, many instruments in that context. We also have an example of a, of a, of a social bond or what one could call a social bond on, on the next slide, basically, if we could just uh, show that one. It's from the, mm-hmm. the Inter-American Development Bank, right? And this was particularly issued for in, um, in quote unquote for Peru or for the for the proceeds to be used in Peru. And -hmm. again, the Inter-American Development Bank, of course, has a, you know, has multiple projects going on. But this particular structure was used, for instance, for their um, their education, youth and employment program within the bank, right? So it's earmarked to a specific project. And and I want to highlight this maybe even even more so because Sometimes we may think that the development banks are actually, you know, some some peers of ours, um, you know, also say that by definition, if you invest in a development bank, you will basically, you know, bring development forward and reaching the sustainable development goals. I would I would caution there a little bit also in the context of what uh, what Ellen shared with us, because some of these development banks still either have uh, quite a book of lending towards um, coal and oil and so on and infrastructure and so some may not have even phased this out, right? So, so it's very, and this is again the, the advantage of having a, you know, use of proceeds type of structure that you understand where your money is going to, so to say, right? To which mm. type of project. Mm. That, that's, that brings me on actually quite nicely to the next question because I also wanted to ask you about reporting. Um, you know, investors in ESG products often would like to see reporting to see, you know, what impact 
their investment is having. And I guess in the absence of external data, how do we do that? How do we go about reporting on, on the good work that, uh, that the companies and, and the, the sovereigns, quasi sovereigns and corporates that you're investing in that they're doing? How, how do we do that? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a also a very good um, good point you're raising. And we, we as an industry and also we at Nodea, we get better and better and stronger and stronger in this, right? Because it's indeed, it even has to do with the element of transparency, right? When it comes to ESG investing, I think that is a, something very important that we, you know, when we can, that we share our data and that we're transparent about what we do, right? I mean, and one part, of course, is, for instance, the let's say the the engagement case that um, that for instance Ellen was sharing with us is of course very difficult to just capture in a one dimensional reporting type of exercise but that shouldn't be stopping us and an actual fact i mean we we can't show it yet because it's so it's so fresh from the press but we will release on on the fixed income side and also on the funds that um, i'm responsible for we will actually if i'm not mistaken in february release um, you know new engagement and reporting type of data which will actually start capturing for instance uh, last year's quarter right i mean so so basically it's it's very important and exciting actually also for us to be able to give this to clients because i think it's very important for them also to make um, yeah, to make choices between uh, between their partners so a uh, little teaser there for for us all uh, maybe on the 14th of uh, february for valentine's yeah, I, uh, maybe, maybe. I'm not sure if, uh, you know, if, if our clients will, um, yeah, we'll see it as a true Valentine's gift, but we, we sure uh, even, yeah, exactly. Let's hope so. Let's hope so, at least. Like. Excellent. Um, let's just summarize this then, uh, if we have the summary, summary slide. So the key takeaways, um, of course, we are uh, dedicated to providing an integrated ESG uh, solution and of course a sustainable solution at the same time and this is something fairly unusual in the emerging market debt space for sure. We're working on this proprietary ESG uh, risk scoring tool that, uh, that we talked about earlier and that gives us our competitive edge and uh, helps us to you know, make decisions based on that ESG score. So a very important part of, of what you're doing there, Tida. Corporates, we prefer corporates over quasi-sovereigns, and uh, you'll see that in the portfolios over time, that we have this bias uh, towards the, the corporates. And, uh, you know, that's because of the ESG risk that, that quasi, you know, state-owned companies can, can represent. And finally, uh, EM bonds that combine both attractive financial returns and ESG considerations. It, it's a growing space and uh, we believe that it also presents uh, attractive investment opportunities. I think my takeaway today is really this is this is all very, very new. Uh, I think that we're at the forefront um, within ESG in the fixed income space. And obviously, Teda, that's that's you and your team. Uh, I think it's been super interesting to see how you've evolved over time. And I think, you know, we're going to see more developments as, as time goes on. But uh, the performance of the portfolios has been fantastic. And I think what you're doing is, is great. So um, that would be my little summary at the end there. Anything you'd like to add before we sign off today? 
Mm, well, maybe I can just reiterate that I think uh, that it's uh, especially, as you said, especially in EMD, uh, important to to actually do ESG and sustainability integration. And uh, I mean, and maybe thank also Ellen for, you know, sharing with us actually what they're doing with Bungan and you know, and working on uh, yeah, coal and particularly in this example. Great. Well, thank you, Tida, for for joining us this morning. Next Wednesday, the 10th of February, we will be sticking with fixed income, but this time we will be talking about our flexible fixed income solutions. And for that, I will be joined by Carsten Bier. Carsten, many of you will know, is part of our multi-assets team up in Copenhagen. So please do join us for that. In the meantime, don't forget to visit our microsite. Uh, you'll find that at nordia.lu. Click on the stay alert and you'll find all of the previous uh, videos that we've done, podcasts and Q&As as well. Also, don't forget our new website, uh, www.nordiaassetmanagement.com. That's it for this week. I'll see you next Wednesday. Mm -hmm.